You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like Sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. This is Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast, You Can't Say That, the show where you can, on the Broadway Podcast Network. My dad used to always call me a square. That was because I was like a square. I was a total nerd. I liked to read. Um, I spent all my time reading. I didn't go to parties. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I think I didn't drink or smoke because my mother was a five-pack-a-day smoker, and I didn't like how people acted when they were drinking, and I just assessed myself at a very young age as being someone who had had an addictive personality, so I was like, if I start that, I'm going to do it so much that it's not going to be good, so I never did, so I didn't hang out with people after school or ever go to the clubs, and in fact, I was married with children by the time I was 25 years old. So two years ago, when I had my first infeogen, which is the new word for it, or psychedelic experience, it was profound. And before I did it, I did all this research. I was reading because I was like, you know what? If I do this, I could die. I might go crazy, and I won't even know I've gone crazy, and I will never come back. So it was very scary for me. So I did all this research, and, you know, the people were like Terrence McKenna and Michael Pollan and you know, South America and mushrooms and just all this stuff. It was like, I couldn't find any black people who were talking about entheogens or psychedelics, like none. And it was very white male. And so I just started this search trying to find where were the people of color who were were doing entheogens. And it was really, really hard. Um, I found one man online and he's going to be on one of my podcasts, uh, Baba Kalinda E. But the first person I found is my next guest. So join me in welcoming from the Drug Policy Alliance. And I'm going to let you say the other name, POC Psychedelic Collective, Ifatayo Harvey. Welcome, Ifatayo. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. (laughs) So, you know, why are there no people of color in entheogens? Why don't we have any books? Why aren't, you know, we can't we find any research about us? (laughs) Wow. Well, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say the simplest way to say that, to answer that that question is because a lot of our practices around, oh, a lot of our practices around entheogens, you know, existed all throughout the world um, for centuries. But because of things like colonialism, uh, the war on drugs, a lot of these practices were taken from us. And so it's particularly for 
black folks, African descendants, um, we come from cultures that were mostly oral history based, right? So a lot of our um, practices were taken from us and we have, it's really hard to find any, uh, you know, written documents. And I, and I imagine it, as you say that, I think about the Native Americans that I know mm. who say that there are stories that they have never told and will never tell the white people, mm-hmm. um, that they only pass orally um, to one another. So I think that there's probably some secrecy involved in it. I, I think of that biblical quote, for him who has ears, let him hear. And so there are things that just are not shared because if you are called to it, the message will get to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I found you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I was I was so surprised when you found me. I was like, wait, who is this person? Like, How did they get my email? And I Googled you and you're an actress. I was like, wait, this can't be right. <laughs> well, I was, you know, on a mission to, yeah. to understand because I also had read a lot about melanin as a neurotransmitter mm. and the way melanin and DMT interact. So I just reasoned that whatever the experiences Terrence McKenna and Michael Pollan and these white guys were having, it would not be able to compare to the experiences that people who have more nel- melanin, which is a neurotransmitter that interacts with DMT would have. So mm. I was like, I want to know what people of color are doing with this. And I want to experience this with people of color. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's something that Kalindi, he's very big on is the melanin and DMT. I don't know a ton about that, but I do know that in my experience, you know, being in drug policy, working with uh, psychedelic organizations, there's not a lot of folks who look like me when you go to events and conferences. There's no talk of how the war on drugs impacted black and brown communities or even indigenous folks, there's really no consideration for race at all. And if you bring it up, you're being seen as divisive and, you know, not really enlightened or whatever, you know, <laughs> BS there. Right. <laughs> so that really motivated me to create my own space because I felt like if if white folks can't understand our trauma and our pain and our our ancestral um, pain that we carry with us, then how are they going to help us heal from that? Mm -hmm. And it was really important for me to be able to create a space for folks who really need this, this type of medicine the most, you know, black and brown folks, we are so traumatized by this country's history that we don't even realize all the stuff that we're carrying. Yeah, uh, I I had taken a class in indigenous-focusing oriented therapy, which is therapy for people living in genocidal cultures, which we are all living in in genocidal culture. Mm -hmm. So I read, and it's your story to tell, Mm -hmm. that you came to uh, being interested in drug policy because of a personal Mm -hmm. drug thing in your life. Would you tell us what that was? Sure, sure, sure. So I came into drug policy because my father was convicted of a drug offense when I was about four years old, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Um, He served about eight of those years and was deported in 2004 back to Jamaica. So that's where he lives today. Um, But growing up as a kid, you know, I always – it was like a secret that I was holding holding in myself. I didn't feel like I could talk to many people about it, really only my mom. And there was just so much stigma around prison and folks 
folks with criminal records. So I've, I carried a lot of shame um, throughout my childhood and didn't really know how to articulate all of that. And so when I came across the Drug Policy Alliance, I was like, whoa, this is like amazing that this organization exists. And um, I was really lucky that uh, I was able to get an internship with them. And, you know, as soon as I told my story to my would-be supervisor, he was like, oh, yeah, I, w- I want you here, like, immediately. So I I felt super-duper comfortable at, at DPA. It's a very unique place because— What do they do? Well, we do um, advocacy and policy work around drug laws and um, drug policies, mostly in the U.S., but we do some international work. So we do everything from legalizing marijuana to uh, policies around uh, preventing overdose and enacting harm reduction. So— it was the first place that I came across that spoke about folks who use drugs, folks who were involved in drug economies with compassion and without judgment and stigma. And so it's really, it's, it's challenged my own perceptions of folks who use different drugs. I come from a family where, you know, alcoholism was common. And even though alcohol is not that stigmatized of a drug, I still have had to unpack a lot of my own biases towards folks who drink. Uh, kind of how you were talking about your mom and the five-pack-a-day thing, that's definitely something that, you know, when you see that in your childhood, it's, it stays with you, and you're always, like, it's in the back of your mind that, oh, that could be me or something like that. So being at DPA was really, it was a healing experience to be able to talk about, you know, my my trauma about, being separated from my dad. Now, you you call it drugs, and I <laughs> tend to mostly call it medicine. Yeah. <laughs> um, plant medicine, fungi medicine, uh, animal medicine. Um, mm-hmm. I've done combo, which is the Brazilian green tree frog, mm-hmm. and some other plants, mm-hmm. and so and fungi, the psilocybins. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to call it medicine mm-hmm. um, because I think they're teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so coming with this background and this shame, how do you overcome that internal stigma shame to even ever try a drug (laughs) (laughs) that's 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 a really good question I think growing up I was kind of like you like I didn't go to parties I read I had a part-time job I was super involved in all my clubs at school because I thought that well maybe if I'm super obedient and stay out of that stuff then nothing bad will happen to me, right? And that's kind of, I guess, a control thing or trying to feel in control. Um, So I stayed away from drugs for the most part in high school, alcohol. I stayed away from that. There were some moments here and there, and one of my friends' uh, senior year was like, oh, let's smoke this bowl. (laughs) And I was like, what is this? And I had a really good experience. What is a bowl? I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a smoking pipe <laughs> for okay, weed. What's in it? Oh, okay. For weed. Yeah. So it's like the glass pipes you see in the bodegas. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we smoked that, and I was just laughing the entire night, and I had a great experience. But even then, I wasn't really trying to seek it out until I got to college my freshman year, and. Going from South Carolina to Massachusetts was a big adjustment for me, and. I was met with the with more anxiety than I was used to um, around my schoolwork and just acclimating myself to being in a very white elite campus. 
And so I started smoking weed again, uh, probably like my second semester. And it actually helped me a lot. So it was an anxiety reliever. It was a stress yeah. reliever from being in this hostile environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was able to write my papers better. I was just able to focus on my work and not get bogged down by my anxiety. So I started I started smoking regularly with my friends. It was like a ritual we had. Like at the end of the day, we would just go smoke and kind of bitch about our lives. And we feel good after that. That was our thing. And uh, <laughs> I did, you know, at some moments, I've definitely felt judged by certain classmates, you know. They're, For doing marijuana. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they would be like. You're a pothead. Yeah, like, stop being high all the time. Like, why do you. Uh, did you, you get good grades? <laughs> you know, I, I maintained my 3.0, so okay. that's all I wanted. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I got I got good grades, and I was actually, I was awarded student leader of the year my senior year, so I would say that. <laughs> thank you. I would say that. The, the pot weed, didn't hold you back. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it was also complicated being a leader on campus and, you know, dabbling in this. I did actually get in trouble once. I got caught on campus. <laughs> and what happened? <laughs> Me and a bunch of friends were in a room smoking, and someone called the campus police on us. And he's, like, banging on the door. And my friend kind of has a smart mouth. He's like, what's that I smell? And she's like, uh, candles? <laughs> so <laughs> so we, got, it, we had to write a letter to the house community there telling them how we impacted, negatively impacted their house community and blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but, you know, it was it was still something. and Some shaming. Some shaming, right, right. And so I did my internship with EPA. The EPA? DPA. Oh, DPA. Sorry, DPA, yeah. And that's why you were in college. Mm-hmm, well, my junior year. And then when I got back to Smith, I actually – uh, got diagnosed with depression. By I was seeing a therapist throughout my four years at Smith, and uh, during my senior year, my mental health kind of was like dwindling a bit. Um, and then I got diagnosed with depression, and it was all, almost like a confirmation bias where I was just like, oh, wow. I'm, I knew I was depressed, but it's different to hear it from someone else. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I kind of went down like a, a rabbit hole with that. And then I got invited to speak at the Drug Policy Alliance's International Drug Policy Reform Conference in Denver. So I was doing the keynote opening plenary as a senior in college. Wow. And I, was, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. They just asked me to speak, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure, no big deal. And then I get there, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to be speaking in front of 1,100 people. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Oh, my God, I was... I was so nervous, but I went up there and did it. And, you know, it was really, again, he- very healing for me to have that talk and very ca- cathartic because there were so many people coming up to me afterwards saying, like, wow, like, I really relate to your story. It was folks who were men who had gotten out of prison and they were, you know, feeling my story from the perspective of a parent or people who were working with kids who had um, parents in prison. So it was really, it was a really good feeling I got from in that moment. Um, And I made a lot of connections, but at the same time, I was still dealing with this depression of mine, right? And so 
later at that conference, I had the chance to go see a panel where it was a bunch of psychedelic researchers, and they were talking about um, end-of-life uh, treatment with psychedelics. So folks with terminal illnesses, things like that. And it was really fascinating and insightful for me because a lot of the things they were saying about folks who were facing death, I kind of... it it resonate with me a lot. The anxiety, like the constant anxiety and stress and things like that. So when I got back to school, I started asking my friends, I'm like, so if I wanted to do mushrooms, how would I do them? <laughs> I started asking them for tips and stuff because they had all done it before. And I was kind of the one who was just like, ah, like, I don't really feel the need to, so I'm not going to. And then I finally was like, okay, I need to do this because the other option was to you know, they were going to prescribe me uh, antidepressants. And my mom's an herbalist, so that was something she always, like, wanted me to avoid growing up. Is like, I don't want you to get hooked on those things. And not to stigmatize people who do use those and do need those, but for me, that was, like, a really big step, and I wasn't sure if it was for me. So I was like, I'd rather try something else. <laughs> so I went with mushrooms, and... Um, I got my hands on some, and I remember getting one of my friends to be my sitter with me. So she was sober, and I cut them all up and put them in a peanut butter sandwich. How much did you have? I took three and a half grams the first time. Three and a half grams your first time. Now, Terrence McKenna says seven grams is the heroic dose. (laughs) You took three and a half. Most people I know, they buy an eighth, and Mm -hmm. they share an eighth. Mm -hmm. You took three and a half grams your first time. Okay, (laughs) tell us about the first journey. Oh, man. (laughs) So, yes. <laughs> oh, man. So, Smith's campus is really great for tripping and journeying because it's an arboretum. So, it's really beautiful in the fall. And so, one Saturday morning, you know, after I ate my peanut butter sandwich. So, you did it in the daytime. You didn't do it at night. Yeah, I didn't do it at night. I didn't know about Kalindi's method at this time. I was just like, okay, I want to do, you know, have some time in my day to like kind of recover so um we went on this nature trail that's really beautiful around this pond and you're walking on mushrooms we're walking okay did you get the nausea did you get the chills or did that skip you (laughs) I did I did so we're walking and I start to notice the the leaves and the plants are like glistening and I see the water like glistening and moving and everything's breathing and I'm telling my friend like oh I think it's kicking in and she's like okay and so we go and sit, sit down in this field, and I just start feeling like overwhelmed with the nausea. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh my god, I'm 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 gonna have diarrhea pretty soon." <laughs> so, <laughs> and I asked my friend, I was like, "Will you judge me if I go take a shit right now?" <laughs> and she's like, "No, no, I won't." I mean, God bless this her. This is a good friend. Are you still <laughs> yeah, friends? <laughs> yes, yeah, she's. Oh my god, she's amazing. Oh my god. So <laughs> I I went to try to go, and nothing was coming out. So I'm just like, okay. And then I see this, like, this this uh, bunch of r- roots, like, wrapped up. And when I was tripping, I, it turns into a face. And it's, like, talking to me. It's like, give me, give me your vomit. Give it, like, telling me to, like, <laughs> to throw up, basically. It's like, just give it to me. Like, you're going to be okay. Just, like, give me your vomit. And so I was like, okay. So I just vomited. And I felt better, but I still was like, I want to just lay down somewhere. So me and my friend, we went back to my dorm, and 
I was, we were in my room and all of a, I just felt really great um, for a while. I was feeling really happy and giggly and that's when it really started to kick in. And um, I remember, you know, kind of expecting that the depression stuff to come up, like something, like a memory or something to come up, but not a lot was coming up. I do remember I uh, picked up a bookmark that my dad had given my mom and it was a it said it was a poem called Footsteps mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've ever yeah I do oh you, you know you want to tell it do you know it <laughs> top of your head it's a really beautiful poem do you know it I don't know it off the okay. top of my head but we can find it <laughs> Well, I know I know the gist yeah, of it. Go ahead. The gist. Yeah. So basically the guy's having a conversation with God and he's saying, you know, I, I'm seeing these footsteps in the sand and you were with me through all these tough times, but through my hardest time you left me. I'm only seeing one set of footsteps. Like why did you abandon me? And God responds, he says, I was carrying you. Mm. And I just broke down crying. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, like mm. I wanna be carried, I wanna be held and and it was a, a kind of a cathartic moment for me there, mm-hmm. too. And I just, like, cried. And it was good because I felt like I couldn't really cry in a mm-hmm. long time. And then five minutes later, I'm just giggling again. So mm-hmm. <laughs> so my emotions were just, like, I was really surprised by that. I'm like, wait, how can I go from being sad to laughing again? This is so mm-hmm. weird. But, you know, now I realize that mushrooms kind of – make you process things a little bit easier than... Faster. I, yeah. I think of all of the entheogens as really intense psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it with yourself. Um, whereas most of us spend our lifetime working our stuff out on other people, projecting mm-hmm. it on them, working as if they are the problem. Yep. When you're doing an entheogen, you go right into your stuff mm-hmm. and you are facing it and there is no one there but you and you either are going to fight that or you're going to be like, okay, like... Uh, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, for the first couple of times I did mushrooms, I went through a couple of hours of self-loathing. Mm. And it was like I wasn't resisting. I'm like, okay, loathing. So let's be self-loathing. How <laughs> self-loathing are we? How awful are we? And I just, because I had read that it you know, was important not to resist mm-hmm. whatever came. Like if it was death, you had to go with the death. But mm-hmm. that, that the most important thing was to not fight it. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to interrupt oh, you, but no. I want to say that I had a friend who was an alcoholic and mm-hmm. I wanted to introduce him to mushrooms. And his experience of mushrooms, he's a Brit mm-hmm. and he's very polite and the manners are very important. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I, all I could say is it just always felt fake to me. Mm-hmm. And when he uh, did the mushrooms, what came up was murderous 
rage. Wow. And for me, it was like the first time Mm -hmm. I truly saw him. I could see the spirit of him as a warrior spirit Mm -hmm. who was born to die for causes Mm -hmm. and that he believed in. And so I was like, come on, who do you want to murder? Who else? (laughs) Come on, come on, come on. And, you know, once it was over, he was like, I don't like that. I don't ever want to do that again. Where did all that bitter and murderous rage come from? I mean, I'm not going to do that again if that's what's going to happen. And I'm like, the the mushrooms didn't do that to Mm -hmm. you. The mushrooms just got rid of all the mask that you cover it up with. So if you haven't dealt with all that murderous rage, Mm -hmm. it's going to come up again until Mm -hmm. you process all of that. Exactly. So back to you and you were laughing and crying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I was just laughing and crying, and then I, the rest of my trip was pretty, pretty relaxing and just very light and fun. I was expecting it to be more heavy than that, and I just, after that one moment where I was crying, it was just, I felt very light, and I, I also felt like I was reminded why I'm alive, because I saw all the plants and stuff breathing, and I was just seeing so much life around me. I was like, wow, this is, there is a reason to live. You know, there's so much beauty in the world. And I feel like when you are, you know, depressed or, you know, dealing with other mental health challenges, you have like these glasses on that kind of make you see the world through like gray, you know, like there's a cloud over your head, like everywhere's cloudy and gray. And then when I took mushrooms, I felt like I was taking those off and seeing everything in like technicolor all of a sudden. And, so it definitely, it it was like a boost, like a reset button was mm-hmm. hit with me. And so that was my first mushroom journey. Um, and so I've, you know, since then have journeyed and experimented with different doses. I haven't really gone higher. Than uh, 3.5. No, no. Um, but that said, I've had some experiences where I've taken smaller doses, but the I guess the mushrooms are more potent. And it was the visuals I was getting was like, like crazy. And then I've also had instances where I've taken smaller doses, but I felt like the lessons that I was getting was more impactful. Tell me about some of the lessons you've gotten on your journeys. Yeah, yeah. So most recently, um, I had a, I planned a retreat in New Mexico with um, five other women. And we did, this is my first time doing like, Mushrooms in a ceremony. Okay. So we did something called nine cup ceremony where we drank nine cups of mushroom tea. Okay. <clears throat> and so this was a, a lighter dose than I was used to. I wasn't getting the visuals. Was there a curandera, a shaman leading it, or were you leading it? Were I wasn't leading space? it. There was a woman, she's black American, and she was leading it. Um, and she's just been learning from other uh, shamans and curanderas. So she's she's pretty young, but she's very, very good oh, very at holding powerful, the space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> when I was on this trip, because it was such a light trip and I wasn't getting visuals, I started getting frustrated and everyone else basically fell asleep. <laughs> there was like three of us who kind of stayed awake and three of us who fell asleep. And I had totally different expectations for the journey. I thought, you know, we were going to be running around, just like looking at stuff and just, you know, having an experience. And pe- we just fell asleep around the fire. And in a way, it was really peaceful to watch. But for me, I was getting frustrated because I'm like, why am I not feeling anything even though I was feeling I was like processing a lot of grief in my life like processing processing a lot of people who had died in recent years and and that felt really good to just like 
let all that go. Um, and But then after a certain point, I felt like they wore off. And so I was getting frustrated. So I go up to... <laughs> Go up to um, the woman who, the ceremony leader, and I was like, where are the mushrooms? I need more. And she's like, they're over there. And so I ate more, and my friend actually made a chocolate pyramid with mushrooms in it. And so we were melting that, and I was just eating more mushrooms because I was like, I need to feel something. And then it started to hit me, and I, I had kind of a revelation. And the message that I was getting was that, you know, you don't need to – have every lesson doesn't need to be a hard one mm. and subtlety is sometimes its own teacher mm. so i kind of interpret it interpreted that as meaning you know every mushroom trip you have doesn't have to be super intense and heavy and with all these visuals and i was talking to my friend uh who was she was still up and she was like you know sometimes the visuals like all the hallucinations and things like that are a distraction from what you really need to focus on and that got me thinking about a lot of my trips in the past, how, you know, I'm everyone's fascinated by the visuals. Of, I don't get visuals. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? I don't have visuals. Oh, my God. That's so, that's so hard to believe. Yeah, I don't have visuals. It's so interesting. It's so interesting hearing how different people are affected by mm-hmm. mushrooms. You know, I've heard people who are like, oh, I take three and a half grams and nothing happened. And I'm like, I had that the first time I did it. Yeah. I took four grams and nothing happened. Oh my God. And then the, the first time I had something happen was uh, I took nine grams. Oh my God. But then, you know, it's from different people. Mm-hmm. So then I found someone who three and a half grams will, will do it for me. But then Kalindi talked about an excess dose. Like no matter how much I've taken, I've never left the room that I'm in. You know, I'm I'm always in the room that I'm in, and wow. I'm having an experience, and I'm here. I have never gone to other places. Have you gone to other places? Hmm. <clears throat> somewhat, somewhat. I would say, yeah, somewhat. I, I've definitely gotten, I feel like I've been transported sometimes, n- not for, like, the entire trip, but just for a brief moment. I remember one of my times I was um, in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, and we were out on James Island, which is one of the sea islands. So we were watching the sunset on the marsh. This is after we ate three and a half grams. And I start seeing like King Tut and Nefertiti and all this like Egyptian imagery in the sun. And I was just like, just like in a, in a daze, like I could not stop staring at the sun. And I was just like, whoa, is this really happening? And then we walk back to the house and everything is fine, but then I start feeling nauseous. So I'm like, all right, guys, I, I need to throw up. So I go to, to vomit, and I start, like, hallucinating, looking at my vomit, and then I get, like, this vision of of a woman, like, in – I guess it was Cuba. I don't know. That's what I'm guessing. But she was, like, wearing one of those, like, big flowy dresses, like – and I see other people with her, and they're, like, wearing red and white. And she's kind of laughing at me. She's like, ha, 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 Like, I know you. Like, she, she was, like, speaking Spanish. So I didn't know anything that she was saying. But the vibe that I got from her was like, oh, like, you, you feel sick now, but you'll be fine. Ha, ha, ha. Like, you're good. And so that was kind of – I was just, like, hugging the toilet bowl, smiling. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, okay, this is this is good. I feel better now. And my friends were kind of worried, like, do you need some water? And I was like, no, I'm good, I'm good. Um, but I kind of it took that, 
you know, sometimes I wonder if that was like some of my ancestors because my great grandma was born and raised in Cuba. Mm. And so I'm like, maybe it's some connection there. Or maybe it's just someone else. Who, who knows, you mm. know? But that was one of my experiences of like being transported just to a totally different place, hearing the music and the drumming and the dancing and seeing this woman who's like really vivacious and kind of just like laughing at me, but like, not in a mean way, but just kind of like, oh, girl, you'll be fine. Don't worry. So I always have instances like that on my trip where <clears throat> I get a message from someone like, you're going to be okay. Don't worry. So, yeah. Mm. It was making me thinking about, you were speaking about the, the traumas that you've experienced. And one of the things they talk about in indigenous-focused oriented therapy that mm. they don't think of anybody as being broken. Oh, okay. If you have survived a trauma, you are considered someone who has indigenous wisdom mm -hmm. and you are someone we have to learn from because you you survived it and you are here to tell the story and mm -hmm. I often think about that about uh, you know the peoples of color of the world the ones of us who were weak died mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. the ones of us who are here we are the strong we mm -hmm. survived it we have mm -hmm. something in us to pass forward mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. we know something about surviving trauma mm. oh definitely and especially us black folks you know I I studied history in college, and I grew up in Charleston where we still have plantations and stuff up and running. And, you know, sometimes I really, when I would be studying in college, I would really try to place myself in the the shoes of my ancestors. And I it was really hard for me because I was just like, I cannot imagine. I know the things that happened to them, but I cannot physically put myself there in that in that time, in that just in that mindset, it's just so, I really think that, you know, we've, we've only scratched the surface in terms of like our ancestors stories and how they resisted and survived. So I'm, I'm just always in awe of how, you know, how their sacrifices made it so that we're here today. And I, I feel one of those things for me, one of my pet peeves, I have many pet peeves, <laughs> one of my pet peeves in the way we choose to tell the stories, even in the way we as black people choose to tell the stories, I am so sick of seeing slaves in these beautiful costumes, in these beautiful cotton dresses. Mm -hmm. Cotton was king. You mm -hmm. was working to pick some damn cotton. They was not dressing no slaves in no cotton dresses. <laughs> there was no dye. You was wearing right. burlap and mm -hmm. potato sacks mm -hmm. and you were half naked and you were barefoot mm -hmm. and that's why they could rape you all the time because you was just walking around half naked and so mm -hmm. that to me is part of the thing that makes it hard for us to know the truth of our story right. because they prettify it and it's right. like it doesn't even make conscious sense that you're going to think that these people had on petticoats and right. things like that. No. <laughs> Maybe when you were in the house and you had to serve people. Right, right. But no. For the most part, you were half-dressed and they walked us across the country barefoot mm -hmm. through snow as they you know moved us from Virginia into Texas and mm -hmm. you know so... I think that that is a, a place of where we don't even realize just how much strength we had mm -hmm. because they've covered over what the circumstances that yeah. we actually endured were. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's so empowering for us to be able to talk to our elders and to read testimonials from folks who were enslaved. Um, my mom has a book series called I, I Was a Slave. Your mother wrote it. Oh, no. She, no, oh. no, she has it at our house. That's okay. I mean. <laughs> okay. But um, it's, it's testimonies written by black folks who were formerly enslaved, and it's really, it's really powerful to read directly from that. It's also really powerful to hear, 
you know, from folks like my grandma, who's 83, and I grew up with my great-grandma, and she passed in 2009 at the age of 97, but even before she passed, she was like, oh, yeah, my, my grandfather was a white man, mm-hmm. and we didn't really, we knew that there was some white ancestry there because she was uh, one of the few lighter-skinned folks in my family, um, but it was, like, also a surprise, so I I think there's a lot of power in being able to to share our ancestors' stories and to talk to our elders and help keep their memory alive that way. That was part one of my conversation with Ife Tayo Harvey from the Drug Policy Network and People of Color Psychedelic Collective. Uh, Come back for part two. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.